Or if you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 493. I've already given you the idea that Psalm 85, like Psalm 126, is structured after this pattern of past, present, and future. What God has done in the past, a present distress, but his future promise. Uh, there's another way to look at Psalm 85. And in this case, it would be to pick out the key word or words that kind of build a theme or tell the story. We've read it through once as a congregation together. And if you're familiar with it or you have a very sharp attention span, probably the key word, if you were to pick out just one key word in Psalm 85, that word would be restore or revive. It's used six times in that psalm. It's used with a little bit of nuance, and it's there because the psalmist wants to ever keep it before you that that's the prevailing theme of this song, or prayer, or psalm. It's, uh, he, God has restored us, but we need continual restoration even now because of our present distress. And one day that revival, that restoration, will be final and complete. There's a man named Ray Ortland Jr., born in 1949. He was a professor up at uh, Trinity International University in Deerfield, Illinois. He pastored a church in Nashville. His father, Ray Ortland Sr., if you're an old person like me, you'll remember he co-hosted, he was one of the hosts of a Christian radio program called Haven of Rest. And a church used to sing that song in the hymnal called Haven of Rest. Uh, it's fallen by the wayside. He's also, I think his son is Dane Ortland, who wrote a very popular book called Gentle and Lowly. So they've had, uh, generationally, they have professed Christ as Lord and Savior. Ray Ortland Jr., what he's most active involved with now is this ministry called Renewal Ministries. Uh, I read a theological journal article regarding revival and regarding renewal in terms of the church, since that's one of our themes, or the main theme, out of Psalm 85. And he asked the question, is revival a blessing? And here's how he answers that question. Is revival a blessing? No. A boost in church attendance is a blessing. Ending the year in the black is a blessing. A successful staff hire is a blessing. Revival is not a blessing. Revival is heaven on earth. Now, part of what he's writing is, is just to get you to think in new ways. I'm going to say it wouldn't be wrong to say revival is a blessing, but I know the direction he wants to go because I read the whole article. Uh, he doesn't want you to merely associate it with a blessing. So then he asks the question, is revival a problem? Is revival a problem? No. A lawsuit against your church is a problem. Conflict among your leaders and uh, volunteers is a problem. Deciding whether to go traditional or contemporary is a problem. Revival is not a problem. So he kind of categorizes it. Revival is neither a blessing nor a problem. And then his answer is, revival is a, is a, is a disaster. Yes, a disaster. When an earthquake levels a city to the earth, that qualifies as a disaster. And revival, the real thing, 
will shake a church to its very foundations. And then he quotes out of, out of Isaiah, where Isaiah envisions a day where every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain before the appearance of the Lord. So it's an upheaval. The gospel changes everything. It's a disaster because it tears down what's familiar and what's comfortable. He goes on to say, to answer the question, uh, it's not only a disaster, but he says revival is destructive. And he has some really interesting thoughts. I'm going to read a few sentences, maybe a paragraph. Revival is destructive. It breaks up the good old boy network controlling a church. It destroys a church's proud self-image. It diminishes the importance of denominational labels. It draws criticism from the world as formerly intimidated Christians find their voice and make Jesus the unavoidable issue in town. Revival exposes the inertia of self-righteousness of disobedient Christians who then become defensive and critical of you. Revival de-establishes long-held traditions that have outlived their usefulness but retain psychological power over a church. The idea there is churches can become so committed to their traditions and their programming that they can never really change. Because they're just going through the motions of it worked for my parents. These forms, these structures, rather than the life of the gospel itself, deconstructing what we think is best and God building it into something that pleases Christ our Savior. Um, Let me move on. He says, let's admit it, revival is scary. And let's admit as well the sins underlying our fears. What we call church can easily and imperceptibly degenerate into an institutional mechanism for reinforcing a comfortable religious status quo. It can become a device for evading the living God while role-playing the worship of the living God. That what we're doing on any given Sunday can be a way to avoid who God really is because we're involved in religious tradition. We're involved in religious expressions. I know it's possible because I read about it in in the prophets all the time. Where, they, where God says, like, you're going through all the motions of offering incense and sacrifice and praying and fasting, and I'm not interested. Because you really don't want me to deconstruct anything. You really don't want to ex- experience the destructiveness of my presence. You merely want to stamp, give, have a stamp of approval on what you think is legitimate and worthy. Church can exist for the unspoken and even unconscious purpose of self-justification, where we say, thank God we're not like them. Revival confronts these deep sins of the soul. Revival intrudes new questions into a church's conscience. Whose church is this anyway? Whose blood paid for it? Whose glory is to be showcased in it? So, you know, we're still in the new year. It's the first month of the year. And... And I think praying for revival would be a good thing if I understand rightly what it means, though it's not going to be a comfortable thing. And so I would invite you to pray for our church for revival. That blessing isn't associated with how many people come 
or how much money's in the bank or how nice the building is out there, though it's, it's, it's a wonderful blessing, but more important than that is that God would, would revive us in a way where we see him new and afresh and we're humbled before him and we're challenged to serve him new and afresh and we are willing, we have to reorient some of our priorities and some of what we do to show that we really do honor him like, like he requires. All right. Other words that are key to this um, psalm, Psalm 85, would be iniquity, sin, and folly. Each one of those words is named one time in the psalm. So if I'm looking for words that are repeated, restore or revive is named six times, three times, you've got a sin problem. That's the present distress. Another word that's named multiple times is anger, wrath, and indignation. That's God's part, which isn't hard to figure. If, if there's a sin problem in Israel, and this psalm was originally for the Israelites, if there's a sin problem, they experience the wrath and the anger of God. Now, as a Christian, I, don't, I won't ever experience the wrath of God like Israel as the nation did though I can experience chastisement or discipline or consequences. But I won't experience the wrath of God. Israel as a nation did, time and time again. Though it was always resolved out of the grace of God in ways they didn't fully understand. But that's a theme. Revival, sin, anger. The last theme would be righteousness, which is also named three times. Righteousness we tend to associate with doing what is right, and that's true. But righteousness in the Bible is more than doing what is right, it's being the right person. Because what you do proceeds from who you are. So in the Bible, righteousness is associated with relationship as much as it is or more than your behavior. Those are the themes in Psalm 85 that we'll explore this week and next week. It starts off like this. He celebrates God's restoration and favor in the past. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. You've got those, those verses that are they're celebrating what God has done in the past. It starts off with this wonderful note of praise. And in that... There are four waves of blessing associated with what God has done in the past, and they ascend. It keeps getting better. It's like the TV commercial. I don't know if they still run these commercials where they're trying to pitch you something, and it's like, but wait, there's more. Like you thought for 1999 you would get this one thing, but there's even more, and it gets better. In this psalm, it starts off with a celebration, but wait, there's more. So it starts off, the first wave is, you're favorable to your land. The Lord led the Israelites into a land flowing with milk and honey. He promised them that over and over again. And they recognize it. This is a good land. It's a good place to be. That's a blessing. But the Lord's like, wait, it gets better than that. And they're celebrating it gets better than that. Not only is the land good, but secondly, you restored the fortunes of Jacob. It's not just the place is good, but you've made us good. You've restored our fortunes. This is good for us. We're experiencing it. It's not just something that we can see and wish we were there. 
It's ours. And we experience God's goodness and his blessing and his favor in restoring our fortunes. But wait, it gets better than that. The third wave of blessing is you forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. Because what is a prophet of man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? That's what Jesus taught in the Gospels. What is a prophet if, if God gives us a good land and he gives us a good standard of living and we're enjoying all the pleasures that this world has to afford but we're still guilty in our own sin? So the third blessing is our iniquity is forgiven. Our sin is covered. And then the fourth blessing, which seems like it's not an ascension, but it really is, the fourth blessing is you withdrew all your wrath, you turned from your hot anger. And I liked how one commentator said, the reason why this is, the, this is ascending even higher, because if all God does is restore our land, restore our families and, and our own interpersonal relationships, and forgive us of our own sin and guilt, but we don't have a relationship with that God, then we really haven't received the highest blessing. Because the highest blessing isn't what's in your home or what's in your land or what it looks like in your own family. The highest blessing is to be restored to God where his wrath is turned away from you and your relationship with him is renewed and restored. That's the highest blessing. And so you've got all four of those blessings the psalmist is celebrating. Why does God do all this? In this particular psalm, it doesn't, it doesn't give you a lot of explanation or detail as to why God does all this, but it's at least hinted at. And if we were to look at all the Old Testament, it's really pretty clear. Why does God do all these blessings? It's because it's his land and these are his people. And the reason why it's his land and his people is because of grace. It's not because that land, God knew out of all the land that was created on the face of the earth, he knew where he put the best dirt. It's, he knew that would be the dirt he would bless in a unique way. He knew that that's a place where he would make it flow with milk and honey, though it may seem against the odds. And it's not that Israel became his people because God looked on all the peoples of the earth and he said, wow, those people have great potential. Deuteronomy makes it explicitly clear the Lord didn't choose them because they were greater, nobler, more powerful, more worthy. In fact, they were the least. But God, merely to demonstrate his grace, made them his people. And this is my land. And that is why he does these things. It's his land. It's his people. Let's turn the page. We've got a present distress. The distress looks like this. Restore us again, O God of our salvation. You did it before. Restore us again, O God of our salvation. And put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Now, a lot of people try to wonder, what is the context for this? What, what in Israel's history were they initially celebrating and then they encountered a distress that led to this prayer? And the two biggest answers are, the two biggest guesses are, well, they came out of slavery in Egypt 
and then they encountered distress. Or, a lot of people say it's, well, they were taken into captivity by the Babylonians, but 70 years later, they returned to their land, and there was a great celebration, but there was still distress because the land was, was largely barren. There really was no temple. The walls of Jerusalem had been torn down, and there was that distress. But here, I like what a commentator said best, and his, his thought was, it doesn't tell us what the distress was because it doesn't mean to. Because Psalms isn't a historical narrative. Psalms isn't like uh, Joshua, or Psalms isn't like Judges, or Samuel, or Kings, or Chronicles, that tells you this, this history, and it lays it out, and you can say, oh, that's what it's talking about. Psalms is an open book of prayer where you can insert your distress into this prayer. I don't know what their distress was. The psalmist doesn't mean to tell you. What he wants you to do is pray the prayer so that you, when you encounter distress, you take it before the Lord and you pray the same type of prayer. That's the purpose of the psalms. So the prayer itself is for four things. It's to restore us, to put away your indignation, to show us your steadfast love, and to grant us your salvation. And those four requests are couched in the middle. You've got three questions that basically express the same thing. Here's what I'm praying, because why wouldn't you do this? And he asked those questions to accomplish the same four things. That's what he prays for. And then if I ask the question, on what basis does he make this prayer? Why would the psalmist think that God would restore them? Why would he put away his indignation? Why would he show us steadfast love? Why would he grant us salvation? And the answer is found in this word steadfast love. Which if, if you've been around people that like uh, to transliterate Hebrew words, it's the word hesed or chesed. It's C-H, but it's, the, it's not really pronounced ch like we think. It's more like ha. Hased, the Hased love of God, the, the faithful covenant love of God. God he's, the psalmist prays this because God promised it. Daniel prays the prayer that the people would be restored to the land of Israel because God promised it. Jeremiah prays the prayer and looks forward to it because God promised it. The psalmist doesn't say, look, we've cleaned up our act. We're a lot better than we were before. We've got it all together now. Now, it's not like a, a child where you tell the child, go clean up your room, and they do a miserable job, and so you take away some privilege. And then, uh, and then the child comes and says, okay, now come check. Now come look. I've cleaned up my room. It's good now because you want the reward. Israel's not claiming that they've cleaned up their act. They know they've got a problem. They're not appealing to their own We've cleaned up our act. They're appealing to God's steadfast love. Look, you promised us this. You made us your people. It's by your grace that we can expect these things. And so his appeal is to the steadfast love. And the end of the appeal, to what effect, is so that your people may rejoice in you. Because that's always the reason why God saves. That's always the reason why God extends grace. In Peter, Peter's uh, first letter, it talks about you're a people saved by God to declare his wonderful praises. 
If you're a Christian, you haven't been saved, you haven't been made a Christian, your sins haven't been forgiven, simply so that you can enjoy freedom from guilt. You've been made a Christian, you've been redeemed to declare his praise. The word needs to come out of your mouth. Certainly among God's people when we gather together as a church. But the words need to come out of our mouth and the way that we live our lives all the time. That's why he saved us, to declare his praises. Turn the page. Now we've got a time for listening. And it reads like this in verses 8 and 9. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him that glory may dwell in our land. This is a time for listening. And it's interesting because it is very easy to be a people that prays a lot or complains a lot and talks to God a lot, but we're not always as good at listening and hearing God's answer. There's another wonderful passage, which I'm not going to have you turn to it, but I would reference it to you. Habakkuk is a little book in the Old Testament. It's only three chapters long. And it's really a neat story. And Habakkuk is also an individual who's who's complaining to God because things aren't making sense and he's got a certain distress. And then he says, I'm going to go up to the watchtower and I'm going to see what God has to say. I'm going to listen to see what God has to tell me about this. And God does answer him. And God's answer isn't entirely satisfying to Habakkuk. Because part of his answer to Habakkuk is, you know, I've made certain promises, but I'm in it for the long haul, not the short term. And generally, if I'm complaining to God, I want him to solve it before sundown. And God is in it for the long haul, not the short term. And so uh, the Lord tells Habakkuk, the just will live by faith. You're going to live your life in a certain way based upon your faith in my character and my promises, even when it doesn't make sense in the moment. That's Habakkuk. Sometimes um, Christians, as Christians, we can be very good about complaining, especially about the world out there. I mean, we live in a very secular, immoral culture. It's very easy for me to complain about the world out there, the culture out there. But the psalmist is praying about the sin in here. Uh, Lloyd, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, what a terrific theologian. Uh, I think he died in 68 or I think in the 1960s. I don't think he made it to the 70s. He wrote massive volumes. Rick Steele has actually read many of those volumes. I think uh, he only preached several books of the Bible. Like I'm, I'm getting pretty close to done with the New Testament. His ministry was a long ministry. He preached through Ephesians. I don't know that he finished Romans. He did some of Acts and some of John. I think that's pretty much his ministry was four books. He might have done a little bit in the Psalms as well. He did some topical things once in a while. If you think I'm slow, I am moving at a race car speed compared to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he makes the point the church is far too concerned about the sin out in the world and far unconcerned about the the sin inside the camp. I think it was Peter that also said, judgment begins with the house of the Lord. If we're going to pray for revival, 
we need to recognize revival starts with us. It's not just revival in the land out there. Those sinners need God's gospel and grace. It's my life needs deconstructed and rearranged. And I need challenged by what God says is true. So the psalmist starts off with, let me hear. And if I were to ask the question, what does listening to God sound like today? Um, you know, for Paul in the New Testament in, in Sunday school, an angel of the Lord appeared to Paul and gave him a message. What, is, what does it look like for me to pause and say, all right, I've prayed to God, I've got my request, or I've got my complaints, or I've got my distress, I've got my misunderstanding, now how do I listen? What does listening look like? I think Jesus gave us the answer when he was tempted. He was tempted by the devil, and the first temptation was to turn stones to bread. And you'll remember Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from or proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8. What does it mean to listen to the Lord? It means you know what he's recorded in his word. Jesus quoted Deuteronomy and said, I'm listening. I'm not listening to the devil's temptation. I know what God said in his word, and it's more important to listen to what he says than what you say or to look at my circumstances. Listening to God means knowing what he said in his word and applying it to your distress and applying it to your situation, your complaint, your cry. James puts it this way. We were in James a few years ago. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Most people know the verse. They know it's in the Bible somewhere. It's in James. It's a lot harder to live than just to know it's there. It's a lot easier to be quick to anger and quick to speak and slow to hear. That's just true. That's why James says it's the other way around. It's very easy to complain to God, to express my distress. I need to be a lot slower at just listening. Not only God, but to other people. Instead of just reacting in my anger and frustration with where they may be. Then moving forward in faith, and we'll wrap it up here. In verse 9, he says, Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. The psalmist has a confidence, a faith, a hope, biblical hope. I know it's true. Surely, I know how this story ends. I know how it ends, and that is his salvation is near to those who fear him. I know that his glory will dwell in our land. I know those things to be true. And based upon that knowledge, he moves forward in faith. And we're going to see more what that looks like next week as we finish up Psalm 85. What are your comments and questions from this week? And then we're going to start Ephesians. My wife is skeptical. But I was done with Samuel. I said we were done with Samuel. And we are done with Samuel. Any thoughts or comments on Psalm 85? I love the pattern in Scripture. The celebration, the distress, the restoration. Because that's my life. As long as I've been a Christian, and I've, been, I've never not been in church, I became a Christian when I was, say, 9 or 10 years old, is when I professed faith. It really became much more real when I was more like 19 or 20. But anyway you slice it, I'm getting up there in age. So I've, uh, I've been a Christian a long time, but the distresses are still there. The distresses are still there. And so I still need to be listening. 
I still need to be listening. Cindy. Habakkuk's a great, I mean, I hate to spoil the story, but the gist of it is Habakkuk starts off complaining about the injustice in the land. He's looking out his window. He's looking in Israel, and he sees within Israel a lot of sin, a lot of immorality, a lot of injustice, and he's complaining to God. And God says, no worries. I'm taking care of this. I'm sending the Babylonians in, and they are going to so whip you up, up one side and down the other. I'm going to solve that problem. And Habakkuk's like, well, they're even worse than we are. That doesn't make sense. And so he's like, how can that be? You're going to solve our problem by, by a nation even more godless than us coming in to reprove us? Now I've got a new problem. And the Lord says, I'm going to take care of them too. But it'll be in my way and my timing, not your way and your timing. It's a wonderful story. I actually taught that years ago too. Rick? It's faith. It is faith in the midst of adversity, which is what the psalmist is praying for and wants. It's what Psalm 126 wants. Let us keep sowing, you know, and reaping, you know, even in the distress, even when it doesn't all make sense. That's just a theme of Scripture. That, that thought of the just will live by faith occurs three times in the Bible. And that's off the top of my head, so I can't tell you exactly. I know one is in Romans. I know what, it starts off in Habakkuk. And each one emphasizes something a little bit different. Like who the just are, or what does it mean to live, or what does it mean by faith. Each one kind of gives emphasis to a different part of that one saying, the just will live by faith. Somebody else? Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.